In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to, Ju to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to men on whom his favour rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. <coughs> when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen which were just as they had been told. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this wonderful day, this day of rest that we can come together as your people around your word, singing your praises. Father, we want to pray now for the ministry of your Holy Spirit to be working amongst us, that uh, you would free us from those things which might distract our minds and help us to focus on your word, that we might know Jesus better we might live for him and love him and serve him. And we pray this in his most precious name. Amen. Sometimes a period of time can be known for who was ruling in government at that time. So in Australia from 1949 through to 1966, what do we call that era? We call it the, the Menzies era. Uh, more recently, from, uh, two from 1996 to 2007, what were those years? They were the, the Howard years. I wonder in years to come, how will people describe the period that we live in now? I guess it'll be a bit more complicated. It'll be the Rudd, Gillard, Rudd, Abbott, Turnbull, whatever kind of era. Doesn't exactly roll off the tongue very easily, does it? But a period in history 
can be defined by what was happening politically and socially. And, and that can be captured uh, simply by the name of the ruler. Because those who rule create the context of our lives. Now, Luke, who wrote his gospel, we often refer to Luke as being Dr. Luke, Luke the doctor. But uh, sometimes he's also referred to as being Luke the, can anyone guess? The historian. Luke the historian. And there's very good reason for that, because when Luke wrote about the life of Jesus, he set it in the historical context of what was happening politically and socially. For example, in Luke chapter 1, verse 5, right at the very beginning of the gospel, he tells us that it was the era of King Herod. Remember Herod? Herod, the paranoid ruler of Judea. Herod was so paranoid that he had assassinated, he had executed people who he delivered, who he thought would have been a threat. If Malcolm Turnbull lived back in those times, he would have been executed. Uh, he, Herod had his own wife executed. He had a couple of his sons executed because of fear that they were plotting against him. In fact, uh, Herod had uh, captured um, or had seized a whole group of innocent Jewish people and put them in prison with the instruction that on the day that he died, that after his death, that they should all be executed. Why would he do that? Well, he, be, he wanted people not to be rejoicing at his death. He wanted people, he wanted the day of his death to be a day of mourning. Such was the character of the man. And when uh, Luke's uh, readers <clears throat> read the opening of Luke's gospel, they would understand that. They would understand, ah, yes, that was the Herod era. Now, today we come to Luke chapter 2, and if you'd like to open that up, we see that again Luke provides us with the political context. He gives us political details. Let me read to you verses 1 to 3 of chapter 2. He says, In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Actually, that could be translated this was the census that took place before Quirinius was the governor of Syria, but that's a small point. And everyone went to his own town to register. Caesar Augustus was uh, previously known as Octavian. He was the first ruler, the first emperor of the Roman Empire. And he was in charge of a very great empire. It was 50 million people spread across a vast region of the world. It was the greatest empire that the world had ever seen. You know what? Running an empire is a costly business. All of the bureaucrats that you've got to employ, <clears throat> all of the armies, all of the, the soldiers that you've got to have stationed throughout the empire, all of those magnificent buildings that you can still see in Rome if you go on holidays there today, required money and vast sums of money. <clears throat> Rome had, uh, was no longer taking over new territories and just plundering 
uh, from new territories. They needed to raise money in other ways and so they had a very well-developed taxation system. And one of their taxes was a flat tax, a, a poll tax of one denarius per person per year. Now the accountants amongst us will tell us, well that's actually a, like a regressive tax system because the rich people only got to pay a denarius, the poorest person has to pay a denarius, but that was the tax. One denarius per person per year. And so, in order to do the budgeting, well they had to know how many people they were. They had to know how many taxpayers there were in the empire. And so that's the reason, one of the big reasons, as to why the Romans would conduct the kind of census which Luke talks about here in these opening verses of chapter 2. Now, to be, to be open with you, <clears throat> modern historians have some difficulty uh, matching the details which, which Luke gives us uh, in these verses of this particular census. They have difficulty matching that with the historical records that are available outside of the Bible. And there's some complicated issues there, but the, the bottom line is that this may simply be because we just don't have all of the information. However, Theophilus, the man to whom, for whom Luke wrote this, this gospel, Theophilus and the other readers uh, 2,000 years ago, they would have known. They would have read that it would have been common knowledge and they would have thought, ah, yes, that census, that census. There are historical records outside of the Bible which show that sometimes people were required to return to their ancestral home in order to register and to be counted in a census. So here in verse 4, <clears throat> Joseph uh, set out on a journey with, his, uh, with Mary, uh, his betrothed. Uh, he set out on a journey from, from Nazareth in Galilee to Bethlehem in Judea. Now, Bethlehem, by the way, is... Um, anyone been to Bethlehem? It's, uh, it's, it's not far from Jerusalem. It's only 10 kilometres south of Jerusalem. You can go there today. There's a lot of tourist places that you can visit in Bethlehem, only 10 kilometres south of, uh, of Jerusalem. And uh, uh, it, was in, uh, it is at this point that the, the context of Roman rule intersects with the context of Old Testament history. Because how does Luke describe Bethlehem? Well, in verse 4, Luke describes Bethlehem as being the town of David or the city of David. That's important. That is, this is the town where more than 1,000 years earlier the family of King David lived. Now why did Joseph go there? Well, Luke tells us that Joseph belonged to the line of David, which means that he was a descendant of David, and that, of course, meant that he was also of the house of David because the line of David was a royal line. It was a, a dynasty. It was a house, a royal house, a royal line. Now, more than nine months earlier, a messenger from God, an angel, 
had appeared to uh, Joseph's fiancée, Mary. Let's go back a little bit. Shall we go back to chapter 1 for a moment? And we'll read a little bit about that particular encounter. In verse 30 of chapter 1, an angel appeared to to Mary, which would have been an interesting experience, and, uh, and she was afraid. Let me pick it up at verse 30. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel. Since I'm a virgin, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. That's extraordinary, isn't it? What an extraordinary promise as well. An extraordinary promise which goes right back to to King David. Um, When David's kingdom was reasonably well established. David had built for himself a a palace, a king's palace to live in, but he didn't see it was right for him to be living in a palace whilst the Ark of the Covenant was still in a tent. And so he said that he wanted to build a house for the Lord, a temple. And you might recall that uh, in passages like 2 Samuel chapter 7 that God, through his prophet Nathan, said to David, well, actually, David, no. Uh, A a temple will be built. It will be built by your son, Solomon, but uh, it's not you who will build a house for me. Rather, David, I will build a house for you. He wasn't talking about a palace. It was a play on words here. He was talking about a dynasty. For he went on to say that a descendant of David would sit on the throne of David that he would rule a kingdom, a kingdom of God, which would be an everlasting kingdom, a kingdom which would go on forever and ever and ever. And that was the great promise. That was the great hope that godly people in Israel held on to. They clung on to, occupied by the Romans, occupied by pagans, they longed for the day when God's kingdom would be established as promised to David. Now, Mary was a virgin, but the the Holy Spirit would would come upon her and she would conceive the Holy One who would be called the Son of God. That's what the angel said. The Old Testament expectation was that this Davidic king would actually be born in the town of David, the city of David. Um, Micah chapter 5. Micah is one of the small prophets in the Old Testament. Um, So you don't have to find a small prophet in the Old Testament. I've printed this passage for you on your outlines. and It's good to see uh, folk using the outlines. But uh, have a look at uh, Micah chapter 5 verse 2 where the prophet says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, 
Though you are small among the rulers of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins from, are from of old, from ancient times. One who would rule would come out of you whose origins are from a long, long time ago. Now, there were actually two places called Bethlehem, the town where David's family came from uh, previously had been called Ephrath. And so here, uh, Micah uh, calls it Bethlehem Ephrathah in order to distinguish it from the other town called Bethlehem. So that's the reason for that uh, addition of the word Ephrathah. We see that uh, this same expectation uh, in, in other parts of the New Testament. For example, in Matthew chapter 2, when the Magi, you know, the, 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 the wise men, sometimes people say there's three of them, we don't know how many of them there were, but they'd come from the east, they were astrologers. Uh, they arrived and they were looking for the king and word got around in Jerusalem that caused quite a stir that uh, these, this entourage of, of wise men had come from the east uh, looking for a new king of Israel. And Herod... Herod called together the chief priests and the elders of the people and said, well, well where is this king to be born? And uh, where did they tell him? Well, they quoted from Micah chapter 5. They said, we expect that he will be born in Bethlehem. Later when the, uh, Herod met up with the, uh, the, with, with the Magi, he said, look, when you find where he is, let me know so that I can come and worship him as if. But there's the expectation in Matthew. And, and later, later on in Jesus' ministry, when there was speculation that he was the Messiah, people were saying, well, hang on a moment. Uh, the Messiah doesn't come from Nazareth. The scripture said he would come from Bethlehem. But they didn't know about his birth. And so <clears throat> uh, it was there... In Bethlehem, in verse 7, unable to find proper accommodation, that Mary gave birth to a son. So what is really a very earthly matter? Uh, a Roman census, Caesar Augustus, uh, trying to budget his tax revenue, ends up being used by God, used to fulfil the prophecies of the birth of God's king, that he would be born in the city of David. Which wasn't, by the, by the way, much of a city. Uh, small and insignificant in the eyes of the world was Bethlehem. And that's often the way it is with God, isn't it? Uh, have you noticed how, how it is that God often chooses insignificant people? Um, how he chooses insignificant places in order to achieve his great purposes. You notice that? A young girl engaged to a, to a carpenter, a chippy. Uh, a small town uh, just trying to exist in the shadows of, of Jerusalem. And here in verse 8, a few shepherds. Now, over the centuries, we have romanticised the Christmas story. Uh, and we've even made, I think, the Christmas story just seem a little bit like a fairy tale. 
Brothers and sisters, we need to understand and we need to feel the historical reality of what Luke is reporting for us. This really did happen. Caesar Augustus really was the emperor of the Roman Empire. Um, Herod really was the puppet king of Judea. Um, Quirinius really was a governor in Syria. There was a tax-generating census. These things happen. And shepherds, well, well we've, we've kind of romanticised the idea of the shepherds, haven't we? As if they're lovely, pleasant, sort of, you know, out there on a lovely, lovely night with all that sort of thing. But the reality was that these shepherds tended to be fairly rough kind of, uh, rough kind of men. Uh, it was considered to be a very lowly job. It was, it was uncomfortable, it was unpleasant, uh, it was even dangerous. Uh, living outdoors through the day, through the night, through all kinds of conditions of weather, fending off wolves. Uh, this was the kind, you know, people didn't aspire to be a shepherd. You might be a shepherd because your dad owned the flock and it was a family responsibility, but being a shepherd, that was the kind of job that you would take if you couldn't get anything else, if there was no other work on offer. In fact, um, shepherds had a bad reputation of... Uh, uh, often confusing, as they say, uh, thine with mine. They had a reputation for being thieves. And we tend to portray angels in a very romantic way, don't we? As if they're kind of these uh, you know, beings with wings that sit on top of Christmas trees. But in verses 8 and 9, when an actual angel appeared to an actual group of shepherds, the shepherds were scared stiff. Because as Luke tells us, the glory of the Lord shone around them. Now it's hard for us to wrap our minds around what that would have involved. All we know is that out in the fields, late at night, these tough, hardened men were terrified. Absolutely terrified. And so the messenger from God, the angel, calms the situation down. Let's read verses 10 and 11. I'll read it. In verse 10, the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news. That's gospel. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Today, said the angel, today, this is the day. This is the day that the prophets spoke about. This is the day that godly men of old longed for. This is the day that godly people in that day were craving for. That day when from the family line of David... A saviour has been born and he is Christ the Lord. Let's unpack that, shall we? Um, a saviour has been born. You know, in Australia, I don't think we tend to call our sons Jesus very much, do we? Anyone, uh, if you're from a South American background or a Spanish background, maybe so. Anyone know any, anyone call this son Jesus? Anyone call this, anyone know a Joshua? 
Yeah, that's a bit different, isn't it? Yeah, it's an interesting cultural thing, isn't it? That we uh, steer away from the name Jesus, but we embrace the name Joshua. Uh, the name Jesus uh, means uh, the Lord saves. <clears throat> that's uh, an anglicised version of the Greek, Jesus. Uh, the Hebrew, of course, is Yeshua, which we anglicise to Joshua. So a saviour would be born. That's why <clears throat> in other gospel accounts, the angel said that you shall give him the name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. But this saviour, this Jesus, is not like one of the rebel leaders of the time that gathered men around them in order to uh, be like an insurgency, to uh, rise up and to rebel against the Romans and to kick the Romans out and to install a new uh, throne in Israel. No, this saviour is described in two ways. First of all, he is the Christ. It's not a surname. The name Christ means anointed one. Uh, in, uh, in Israel, when someone was made a king, they were anointed with oil. Oil was poured upon them. Uh, and as we talked about when we looked at the book of James in chapter 5, originally that had therapeutic value and it came to have that ceremonial value as well. So it means anointed one. But this child is not like any other one who is anointed as king. The angel declared that he is Christ, the Lord. The Lord. Now, the Lord, uh, Lord means ruler. It, in one sense, it can mean any kind of ruler. But uh, more often than not in the Bible, it means God. No matter what way you cut it, at the very least, the angel is saying, this baby is the ruler of kings. This baby is the king of kings. This baby is the Lord of lords. There's no other thing that the angel could have said that could give him a higher status than, that, than by saying that he is Christ, the Lord. But you won't find him in a palace. Don't go looking for him in some place where he's surrounded by opulence and status and luxury. You won't find him in Rome. You won't even find him in Jerusalem. You'll find him in a feeding trough for cows, a manger in the city of David. Now, how did these rugged shepherds respond to all of this? Well, we know how they responded because in verse 15, what did they say to each other? They said, let's go. <laughs> what are we waiting for? In verse 16, they, they, just, they just dropped everything, left the sheep to fend for themselves. Good luck with that one. <laughs> uh, they, they just left the sheep they, and they hurried off to Bethlehem. They searched, they found, and they were changed. They were changed. In verses 16 through to 20, we see the different ways that Mary reacted and the shepherds reacted. Mary reacted by, uh, uh, by treasuring up these, these memories in her heart and pondering these things. There's the, there is the response of the mother who loves her child. The shepherds, though, well... <laughs> They, they just couldn't stop telling everybody. They wanted to spread the word. They wanted everyone to know 
what it was that they had seen, what it was that they had heard. And we're told that they returned to their sheep, right? they returned to their fields, and what were they doing, friends? They were glorifying God and they were praising God. But there is something else that they had seen and heard. In the fields that night, as the angel had announced the birth of God's king, something else happened. What was it? Well, in verses 13 and 14, a great company of the heavenly host, a a great army of angels had appeared suddenly praising God. And and they were saying, have a look at it in verse 14. Uh, What is it? Let me find verse 14. They said they were praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favour rests. Interesting irony for an army of angels to be proclaiming peace. But proclamation of peace is what it was. The Romans had promised peace. The the Pax Romana. Uh, Obey Caesar, pay your taxes, and we'll leave you in peace. (laughs) Nice peace that is. People today crave after peace. We crave after peace between nations. We crave after peace within nations, as we see the the human tragedy unfolding in places such as Syria, caused by sin. We crave peace, don't we? Peace peace between nations, peace within nations, peace within our own lives, peace within our own families, peace within our own homes. And at Christmas time, people look to the baby in the manger as a sort of a symbol of peace. That they, they realise there's something about the baby that brings peace. And they, they quote, or they misquote these, these verses because it is not peace and goodwill toward all men. If that were the case, then the history of the last 2,000 years would show that it's been an utter failure. It actually says, peace on earth to all men on whom his favour rests. On whom the favour of God rests. This was a king born into poverty. This was a king who was despised and rejected by men. This was a king who was crowned with twisted thorns. This was a king executed under a sign saying, the king of the Jews. But brothers and sisters, this was a king who rose from the dead. This is a king who is the saviour, Christ the Lord, who by his death on the cross has paid the penalty for all our sin. He's paid for your sin, no matter what you've done, no matter who you are. He's paid for my sin. He's paid for our sins so that we can be forgiven by God, so that we can be reconciled into a relationship with our Creator, so that we can have a peace with God. That is the peace that Jesus brings. It is a peace that we experience when we trust in Him 
And only when we submit our lives to Jesus as our King, as our Ruler, as our Lord. Now, the era in which we live is not defined by any earthly king or prime minister. Just as well, hey, because it's a bit hard to keep track of them all. The era in which we live is, you know, it's not the, the Rudd, Gillard, Rudd, Abbott, Turnbull, Abbott, whatever kind of era. Uh, the era in which we live is not determined by the fact that our monarch is the longest reigning uh, British monarch ever. What is the era in which we live? Well, it's the year of the Lord. It's the year of the Lord. The, Luke, the, the, the event which Luke describes for us in these pages is the event which divides and defines human history. The whole of the history of the world is summed up as before Christ or Anno Domini. We live in the, the year of the Lord, 2016. The big question, therefore, is, is he your Lord? Have you trusted in his death to pay for your sin? Is he your saviour? Do you know what it means to have peace with God through trusting in Jesus? Well, as we think about those things, let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you that you have acted in history to bring about your good purposes. We thank you, Father God, that uh, you have fulfilled the promise to David we thank you, Father God, that on that uh, cold night that uh, you revealed yourselves to shepherds, uh, that you revealed your Son to the world. Father God, we pray for ourselves. We pray that we would be people who put our trust in him and whose lives are defined uh, by the reality that Jesus is our King, our Ruler. Father, we pray that like the shepherds, that we would be people who just want to tell others of what you've done and of who Jesus is. May we be people whose lives are spent praising you and glorifying you. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.